This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. All right, so welcome everybody to our evening study, people's lunchtimes, mornings, whichever they are, and uh, at, at Jerusalem, looking at the last words of Moses as we grapple with um, Moses' final farewell speech of encouragement, of Torah, uh, of hope uh, to the people of Israel as they are about to enter Canaan. So, Neville, would you be able to pray, begin with prayer? Yeah, thanks. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you for this time set aside to come before your word, Lord, and we pray that during this time that you would draw near to us, Lord, that you would speak to us in our situation and meet us in our needs. And Father, show us wonderful things out of your word, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, and uh, Jennifer has also got a prayer as well, which I've just seen on the chat, and we will pray um, at the end of the study. Okay, Jennifer? We'll pause and uh, cut the recording and then, and then break into prayer. Okay. <clears throat> So, last week we finished off Deuteronomy 10, that was verses 10 to 22, and today we will start uh, chapter 11. The, the, I'll just read uh, the summary of our discussion from last week. It is as follows. Moses remains on the mountain, interceding with the Lord for 40 more days and nights. Now, Jewish exegesis finds three occasions where Moses spends 40 days with God on Sinai. Thus, accordingly, Moses has a total of 120 days with the Lord, and the Lord listens. Classic Jewish question. What is the classic Jewish question? Why? Why does God listen? Was it the prayers? Was it Moses' obedience? Certainly wasn't Israel's. Was there an angel interceding, or was it plainly the mercy of God that he would relent from harming Israel? Why did it take so long for the Lord to answer Moses? Why was his intercession not answered swiftly, particularly in the way we understand the word swiftly? The text provides no answer, simply allows the reader to ponder and contemplate divine justice and the power of prayerful intercession. God commands Moses to return and lead the people to the land of Canaan. This narrative completely removes the angel of the Lord that will lead and guide the people as found in Exodus 23. In Exodus, the angel will speak in God's name and the people must listen to him. The word angel means messenger and so Jewish commentaries will note that the Exodus messenger is really Moses, who speaks for God. Now what follows is one of the central questions of the book of Deuteronomy. What does the Lord your God require of you? The answer does not focus on the keeping of the law and obeying rules, although obedience is indeed part of the answer. Rather, the answer is relational, and the attitude of the heart is of primary concern. Note, primary, but not the only concern. We are to fear the Lord, to be in a state of awe and hesitant to offend him, walk in his ways, living according to his pattern, 
implying a sense of obedience and control over our own desires. We are to love him and serve wholeheartedly. While we have redemption from slavery in Egypt, we remain in some sense slaves to God. Paul continues that theology in his epistles. Lastly, we are instructed to guard the commandments of God. Therefore, to guard them, we would need to know them, implying instruction. All of this is for our own good. There are positive benefits to loving, serving, and obeying the Lord. Moses then reminds the people that the almighty God of heaven, as vast as that is, considers Israel to be a special possession. This despite the fact that a month ago, he was about to utterly destroy them. Israel is called a chosen people. Being chosen leads to responsibility as lights to the nations. As part of this calling, Moses regales the people to circumcise their hearts, a theme carried through the prophets. Physical circumcision would usually be covered by clothing and it would remain unseen. Conversely, spiritual circumcision is seen through the actions of character and behavior. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Physical circumcision cannot be seen. Spiritual circumcision can be seen through your actions and your character. So at this moment of Deuteronomy, Moses says, be stiff-necked and stubborn no longer, which is a change in your behavior. Now, verse 17 describes some of God's character, his greatness as God among the gods, his mightiness and his awesomeness is then paired with his justice in showing no partiality and accepting no bribes. How can God take bribes, one might ask? Most likely through the prayer bargaining. This is not something God engages in, but which many of us think that we can do. God is a defender of the weak, not the strong. He takes care of the widows and the orphans, which ends up as a model for true religion. It is an action, not a doctrine of theology, and provides his support to the stranger among the people. Again, national memory of Egyptian slavery should moderate present behavior in the people of God. That behavior should be a reflection of the character of God. The mighty acts of God in the past demonstrate his nature and character. In summary, then, a circumcised heart implies actions and behavior in the people of God that are molded on the deeds of the Lord. That's a a, a summary of some of the things that we discussed from, from Deuteronomy chapter 10. Now, going through chapter 11, I'll give it a read and then we'll go in for discussion. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments and his commandments always. Know today that I do not speak with your children who have not known and who have not seen the chastening of the Lord your God, his greatness and his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and his acts which he did in the midst of Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to all his land. 
what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses, their chariots, and how he made the waters of the Red Sea overflow them as they pursued you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. What he did for you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Aviram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up, their households, their tents, and all the substance that was in was in their possession in the midst of Israel. But your eyes have seen every great act of the Lord, which he did. And therefore you shall keep every commandment which I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land which you are to cross over to possess, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swore to give your fathers to them and their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and watered it by foot in a vegetable garden. But the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it, from the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, commandments to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and all your soul, then I will give you the rain for the land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil, and I will send grass on your fields for your livestock that you may eat and eat. Now take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you, and he shut up the heavens, so that there be no rain, and that the land yield no produce, and you perish quickly from the good land, which the Lord is giving you. Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you will bind them as a sign on your head, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, like the days of the heavens above the earth. For if you carefully keep all these commandments which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to hold fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations from before you. You will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourselves. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours, from the wilderness and Lebanon, from the river, the river Euphrates, even to the western sea, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you upon all the land where you tread, just as he has said to you. Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you today to go after other gods which you have not known. Now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land that you, that you go to possess, that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not on the other side of the Jordan? 
toward the setting sun in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the plain opposite Gilgal, beside the terebinth trees of Moran. For you will cross over the Jordan and go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You will possess it and dwell in it. You shall, and you shall be careful to observe all the statutes and judgments which I have set before you today. Whew. All right. There's a lot there. I think we will probably make it to verse 2. All right. That's <laughs> All right. So is there anything there on an initial surface reading which jumps out at you? I was, surpri I was surprised that the wording actually... The wording actually... The wording actually reads that uh, he says, I will put the curse on the actual mountain and the blessing on the actual mountain. Yep. There's, um, there's, a, there's a lot to do with, like, the land. Uh, wherever you set your foot on the land, and the land is going to drink, and the land is going to do this, and the curse will be on the land. It's, it's, it's as though the land is alive. Yeah. And it, it responds to the Israelites which is very interesting. Yes. It's, it's the second passage of the Shema. Uh, and yes, also, yeah, and the other thing is that the land that they have today, the land of Israel is much, much smaller than what was given yeah. in verse 24. Yes. It's, there's this interesting description of the land, and yet... When you finally cross into the territory and actually divvy up the tribes, it looks nothing like this. <laughs> and you go, okay, you scratch your head and you go, now what, what, what's the problem here? Okay, so that's, that's worth talking about when we get to it. But yep, the, the land deviation seemed um, in excess of what actually physically happens later on. So. I liked... Uh, the, it is the second part of the Shema, and that's actually what you say, um, and it even mimics the first one. Um, mm -hmm. It says, you shall love the Lord your God, mm -hmm. and, it, and it's almost like a repetition of Deuteronomy 6, 7. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a question? The, the thing that struck me was in verse 26. It says, behold, I set you before this day a blessing and a curse. I always thought it was blessings and curses. So is it a singular in the Hebrew? Or is yes, it, it is. Yep. It is singular. Oh. Yep. So it says, Roe Anochi Natan. So look today, uh, I'm getting, uh, um, giving, I'm giving before you, Hayom, giving before you this day, Boracha, blessing, singular, the Kalala, curse. That doesn't excite me at all. Erin, <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing I'm noticing here is that it, it shows a lot of the character of the Lord God here because there is no gray area. It's either black or white. Yep. That's right. It's right. There's a blessing or a curse. There's no sort of half blessing. There's no half truth. There's just truth, non-truth. There's kingdom of heaven, and then there's the other one. There's, and, and you see that all the way through to Revelation where God says, don't sit on fences. I don't, I don't do fences. Pick a, pick a side, you know. Um, yeah, there's a, it's interesting. And, and it's very physical, these, these mountains. And maybe um, next week I'll get a photo of Mount Gerizim. And, uh, that one we have. That one at least got something built on it. 
Yeah, Ron, one of the things I kind of notice is that um, the blessing is always conditional. It has always been conditional throughout this chapter. Yeah. So if then you faithfully keep to this instruction, then I command and I command you, loving the Lord God with all your heart and, you know, going back, then he says that it would dislodge um, before you the nations and everything. You know, it's the word that if, you know, if then you faithfully keep to this instruction from verse number 22, uh, you see that um, it's conditional upon Israel keeping to the instructions of God. Uh, yes, yep, very good point. And I picked that up when I read it uh, a couple of, uh, about a week ago, and I had a little look, and my first reaction was, hang on, the, the possession of the land, God says, I swore to give this to your fathers. Now you'll get it if you obey me. Hang on, well, how can you swear it to your fathers if, you, if it's conditional that they'll get the land if, if it's obedience? Now, where's the tension? And that is classic Hebrew tension. It's just, it's just classic stuff where you go, but you said to Abraham to give it to them. Yeah, I will. Now you're going to obey me or you won't get it. Well, how does Abraham get his, get his promise then? It's very interesting. We'll have to deal with that when we go. Bernardo from Mexico uh, says in the chat, there is no fear of the Lord mentioned in this chapter. I mean, there isn't previous ones, but in this one, it's um, love the Lord, obey the Lord. There's no Fear the Lord in, 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 this, in this one, okay? um, which is also an interesting thing uh, to note. In, in a sense, Aaron, in verse 31, uh, it does say the Lord has said, you are going to pass over anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah, so there you go. I'm going to give it to, I'm going to promise to Abraham, you'll get it upon a condition of obedience. Uh, I'm going to give it to you anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> Like, you know, God is Trinitarian, right? So you may as well just get all three out there, yeah? And then the whole thing about getting the land, it's not like the the ends to the means. It's actually getting to the land, being a blessing to the nations. So it's just getting into the land is just the beginning of what they have to do. Of course, Abraham had talked about that in Genesis 12. It's just that continuation of be a blessing and spread that out to the nations. Yeah. Yeah, there is. It is interesting, isn't it, that the way God wanted to bless the world, he made everybody have land, everybody have borders. Borders are given by God. This sort of utopian idea we're now living in where we don't have borders anymore is unbiblical. Okay? Um, but uh, God, God decides to affect the world through a place which is very interesting. Now, I'm going to put my name there. Nations mm-hmm. are going to come to me. You know, this, we've got the sort of idea that, yes, on one hand, God does woo us. God does chase us. God sends his spirit to, to go over the world to look and to reach and, 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 and capture everybody. But at the same time, he also likes a place, uh, which is interesting. Okay. Well, looking at verse 1, all right, and uh, it starts, you know, which is very reminiscent of the Shema, the same sort of language, okay, and you are to love uh, God, and, uh, and how do you do this? How do you love the Lord? 
obeying his commandments. Yes, right. Love is not left as a matter of impulse, right? It's not, it's not a matter of feelings. Like you shall love the Lord your God if you feel like it. Once you've had an overdose of chocolate and you're all gooey inside, then please express your love and devotion to the Lord. It's also a commandment. Okay? This, uh, this, it's a commandment to love God. What could God have commanded us to do? Think about that. God's got his people standing before them. And he could say anything he wants. This is actually what I want you to do. What's the command? Love God. Could have commanded anything. Could have commanded hundreds of other things. I mean, he did. But the big one is love. And so um, the command is love God. What do you see when you get to Revelation? Revelation 2 verse 4. What is the problem of the church of Ephesus? They've lost their first love. Yes. That's, isn't that interesting? God gets his people. He's finally revealed himself. Out of anything God could have said, he's like, I want 10% of everything you have. You know, I want you know, uh, this. These are the things you will do. Okay? But, um, but, uh, but God wants love. I want you to love me. It's a command. I, I want this. And then... You, this is the, you know, the great desire that God wants. And you get to this church in Ephesus and, and, and they're accused. No, you forgot your first love. And, uh, you know, I, I've got this against you. That's a, that's, a, that's a really big deal. Can I just point out, uh, Aaron, it's, it's, it's worth appreciating that the, the word love, when it's used in many places in the Old Testament, the word chesed, meaning steadfast love, it always has more of an emphasis on faithfulness and loyalty than people these days think of what's associated with love. Yes. So it, it is a, it's something which is actually goes against the human nature, you know, and the f freedom we have to kind of fall out with each other and, and break marriage covenants. But the love that he looks for, the love that he thinks that we should live by is one of faithfulness and steadfastness because uh, that's the way he treats us. Yes, and the love that he talks about is opposite to selfishness and the lack of obedience. There is this love that is selfless and there's this love that obeys as opposed to, yes, the modern world of love, which is very egocentric, and love never goes against the word of God. You can't, you can't justify breaking anything that, that God says in the name of love, okay? You can't go against a command, which many people do. We've changed all kinds of things around. We've changed marriage rights. We've changed identity. We've changed, you know, borders, you know, in the name, name of being nice and loving everyone. But love never goes against the, the, the commandments of God. In fact, what does Jesus the Messiah say? What does he still say? If you love me... Love me. You will keep my commandments. You will keep my commandments. Okay, those two go hand in hand. And you see it here in chapter one. Love the Lord your God, keep his commandments. Okay, and, and Aaron, 
Aaron, it's interesting that in the, you had mentioned the book of, of Revelation, that church, and then at the end, the endurance of the saints in uh, Revelation 14, 13, or 12, says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep my com the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So yeah. the endurance of the saints is, is the love through the obeying of the commandments. Yep, it's both. Yep, they are interlinked. And... Um, and, 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 and there's, there's not a works righteousness. It's just the love, the, the, the true form of love that God has for, for us. And for okay. So the next section, verse 2, actually, verse 2 to 7 are actually the longest, uh, uh, the longest Hebrew sentence in the entire Bible. Okay. It just keeps going. I know, I know in our um, Bibles, they've got verses. But in the Hebrew text, it's just this one long, giant sentence. And when you read it, you're thinking, oh, my gosh, when is this actually going to end? It's just a constantly a vert and a vert and, and this and that and this. And I've just got so much to say. Um, so uh, I'll read it again, uh, two to seven. So this is the longest sentence in the entire Bible. Know today, ooh, good one. Know today that I do not speak with your children who have not known, who have not seen the chastening of the Lord your God, of His greatness and His mighty hand and His outstretched arm. Trying to say this without a breath, I can't do it. His signs and His acts, which He did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and all His land. What He did to the army of Egypt, to the horses and the chariots, and how He made the waters of the Red Sea overflow them as they pursued you. I don't know how Moses said all this in one breath either. And how the Lord has <laughs> to this day. What He did for you in the wilderness when He came to this place, and what He did to Dathan and Abiram and the sons of Eliab the sons of Reuven had the earth open up its mouth, swollen up, and the households dense, and the substances that was in the possession in the midst of Israel. But your eyes have seen this very great act which the Lord did. Oh, amen. Longest sentence in the entire Bible. Okay? And uh, thankfully, we've broken it up into, into verses so we don't have to look at it all. In well, in my, in my Bible, it's almost all one sentence, although verse 7 is a separate sentence. But the rest <laughs> is that right? Okay. Yeah. Well, well done. Yeah. 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 <laughs> You're not quite sure why they bring into this gigantic monologue all of a, se all of a, a, a second, but um, there you go. All right. So, know today, all right, it's got this. God is speaking to the people, and he's, he's deliberately now separating the, the generation that is seen to the generation that is not seen. Okay? Um, and he's talking to the generation that has seen. I'm not talking to the kids here. I'm talking to the adults, the ones who have actually seen some stuff. Because the, um, the, the children that haven't, haven't seen, that you guys have seen, and what have they, have they seen? Chastisement. I find it very interesting that he starts with chastisement, not with his great hand or his might or anything. He starts with the chastisement. Yes, it is. Yes, it is an interesting observation. Yeah. Because um, many times we would, when we when we like to share God, we always we, we certainly don't share that. And I say, let me tell you, uh, brothers and sisters, I know you're suffering right now, but I want to tell you the time God gave me a clip around the ear because I deserved it. You know, that's really <laughs> not what we start with. Um, there's that aspect to Him, absolutely. And it's interesting that that Moses is standing before the people of Israel, and we got to start with some this aspect of God. Okay. The, the, the bit that is not so um, um, warm, warm and cuddly. Okay. The, the, he's, uh, 
his signs and his acts. These are the things that God has done. And because they've seen, what does that imply? It implies that they should be able to remember this. They should, they should know about the character of God. They should understand this is what it's like if you try and go up against God, the king of the universe. The most powerful nation couldn't do it. None of their gods could withstand him. And not only do we um, uh, destroy the, the, the enemy, okay, uh, and we also add some internal rebellion. We throw in a little bit of, um, we don't do the golden cow thing. Okay? We, could have, we could have said that. Uh, um, we don't do the snakes on a pole thing. What do we do? We talk about two characters, Dathan and Aviram. Dathan and Aviram, and uh, who are uh, Reubenites. They're from the tribe of Reuven. They're sons of Eliab, and they actually have really nice names, right? Dat. What's Dat in Hebrew? Anyone know? That's religion. Okay, so Dathan, yeah, the religion that the given the given religion. Okay, Aviram, my father is great. Ram is high. Oh, my, my father is great. And he, his father was Eliav. My father is God. Right? You know, God is my father. Good, great names. And yet, what do uh, Datan and Aviram do? Anyone remember? They challenge Moses, his leadership, his kind of his sole authority. They think they should have a slice of the action. Yeah, they do. And um, if you have a read in Numbers, Numbers 16, there's an interesting character who's not there. Because okay. when we... When, right. right. When you actually think of this event, you don't say the words, oh, Datan and Aviram. What you say is... Korak. <laughs> but when, when Moses is retelling the story, you're not there. Okay, because it says in Numbers 16, now Korah, the son of Itzah, the son of uh, Kohath, the son of Levi. So Korah is a Levite, right? With Datan and Aviram, the sons of Eliab, the sons of Peleth, the sons of Reuven. So they're from Reuven, Reuven, not from the sons of Levi. They rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel. Uh, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregations, men of renown. They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, you take too much upon yourselves for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, okay? We're all a priesthood here. Anyone heard that argument before? Yep. We say it often in our churches, okay? We're all a kingdom of priests. Why does the priest get to do anything? That's not right. Okay? Well, we've got that conversation going on right here. Okay? Everyone's holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves before the assembly of God? Okay, so when Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he spoke to Korach and all these companies, saying, Tomorrow morning the Lord will show you who is his and who is holy and will cause him to come near to him. The one whom he chooses he will cause to come near to him. Do this, take censers, Korach and the company, put fire in them, put incense in them, and, and, and put them before the Lord tomorrow, and it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. You take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. And you know what happens is that the earth swallows them up. 
And, and uh, in all of our Bibles, I'm going to guess that the title of that chapter is The Rebellion of Korah. And here, Moses doesn't mention him at all. Okay. What's the good Jewish question? Why? Why? Okay. Why? why was he not mentioned? <laughs> so, of course, the text doesn't say why. There's no like, little footnote. Oh, by the way, this is the reason why I didn't mention Korah. Okay. So, why do you think, guys? Well, isn't it just those two, Dathan and Abaram, that disappear, and, and it doesn't mention Korah disappearing into the ground? Right. In, in Numbers or in... Uh, in, num in Numbers. In Numbers 16? Right. Yeah. And why do you think that is? Didn't they instigate it? That they'd stayed in the... They hadn't come to the tent of meeting. They'd stayed in the camp when Moses asked them. So he went out to meet them in the camp. Yes. So which, which tribe does Korah come from? Levi. Yeah. Right. So what do the Levites do? The Levites are there to take care of the temple yeah. and the matters of the temple, but they are not supposed to um, offer the sacrifices. Which right. are left for the priests. The Kohen, yes. So, so within the, the family of Levi, there is a subset family called Kohen. So Levites already have a role in the tabernacle. They already play a role. In fact, Levites are the only ones who are allowed to carry the ark. Kohen can't even do that. Right? So when they take to break down the tent, Levites got very special jobs. Okay. Which tribe do Datan and Aviram come from? Reuben. Right. They are not Levites. They have absolutely no role whatsoever in the tabernacle. And, uh, and so uh, they are, they're just not meant to be there, period. Right? Um, and, and they're asking an honest question. The Lord is amongst all of us. We're all a holy nation. We all want to worship the Lord. And we have, had, we have that argument in our churches today. We're all a kingdom of priests, blah, 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 blah. And, uh, but here, there is a, there's definitely a certain uh, relationship that God has with this special tribe. And so I don't know the reason why Korach is not mentioned here, but they are Levites. They're already meant to have a role. In fact, what do we find in the Psalms? They write psalms. That's right. They, 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 wrote, they, they wrote the number of the sons. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's right. But in the, the sons of Korah are not wiped out. That family isn't. Datan and Abiram is. Okay. Mm -hmm. Them and all their households are swallowed up. But the, but the sons of Korah remain. Why do they remain? Because mm -hmm. they're Levites. They've actually got a physical job and uh, they, they um, uh, remain worship, as, as worship leaders and end up writing quite a bit of the, the prayer life of the Jewish people, which is very Aaron, nice. Aaron, if we look at um, that same number 16, where we draw the narrative from, in verse 32, 
It says, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their household, all Korak's people, and all their possession. Yeah. That's so right. it's mentioned it's mentioned that Korak was um, was kind of among them. There it does, and yet somehow his household doesn't all disappear. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so perhaps there is Moses now is uh, I don't know how long, maybe let's say twenty years since this event, those children of Korach are now serving under Aaron, right? Aaron's a Levite, and uh, so, you know, they've, they've got some function, and they've made reconciliation with Moses and the tabernacle, and they've got some function. But when it's time for Moses to do a bit of retelling in front of people, there's no need to bring up, oh, we wiped out Korach, and the people are standing behind Moses going, well, who are they then? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. You're right, some of them are still here. Oh, well, the good guys are still safe, okay? But those darn, those darn nasty Reubenites, okay? Rakan and Abiram, they're not here. Anyone seen any of them? No, they haven't seen any of them. It would uh, be that way. Yeah, it's yeah. very interesting when you look at some Midrash on this, um, on this narrative. Um, looking at um, the tribe of Reuben, since they are firstborn, they are challenging Moses that uh, we are the firstborn and now we don't get anything. Yeah. And of course, Korak is looking at um, him as a Levite, but he doesn't get the priesthood because if you see what uh, uh, Moses was saying, that uh, God has given you the Levite, you also want the priesthood. So he was actually looking for the priesthood, he was looking for power. And um, the same thing they were in their accusation against Moses was what they were actually looking for. They were saying Moses take too much upon himself. In other words, they want to exercise that same power yeah. And their inability of doing that makes them to rebel. Yeah. I mean, Moses has got a glowing face. Moses has been speaking with God. Moses has been holding the very words of God in his hand. He's got a lot of stuff. Moses has got the great staff and does great miracles and brings water from the rock. We want some of that power and authority too. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and that's, um, that's jealousy. That's... Uh, that's not selfless love. That's selfishness love. There's all of those things that, that happen. And it's interesting that let's smite Egypt, let's destroy their gods, and let's swallow the, up a few people as well from within, within the house of Israel. And those two, two sins are lumped together in sacred history. But notice in this retelling of sacred history, this long, long sentence, it's not about what man has done per se. What is it? Or any of his great achievements. It's what God has done, right? Sacred history. I mean, when we do history, we always have a history about what man has done. Hey, we read books about famous explorers and great uh, engineers and scientists and artists. Look at the achievements of man. Go into the Bible and what is the achievement about? Look what God has done. Taste and see what he's doing in people's lives, how he's molding and shaping creation. And that's what makes history sacred. History is history, yes, and you should learn from it, yes. Uh, But when it comes to biblical history, God is constantly saying, remember what I've done. You've got some great achievements too, but I've got some good stuff. And then when we get to the Messiah, what what does Yeshua say to us? He says, you're going to do even greater things than me. Ooh, now that's an interesting kingdom to be a part of. 
Yes? Mm -hmm. right. you, know, you, think, you think I'm pretty good? Okay. Wait till you see what a spirit-empowered kingdom looks like when there's lots of me running around in your form. Right? Okay? When, when I'm attached. And that's pretty special. And so this, this long, long bit uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a talk or a challenge for the people who have seen these things to remind them, because in verse 7, your eyes have seen every great act that the Lord has done. Okay? That, uh, that, that one of the things about history is it records things God has done. Imagine what the Bible would look like if God hadn't done things. But right, he made the world, made Adam, and he said, yeah, okay, get on with it, and then just sat away and did nothing. Right? The Bible would be pretty darn small. Yeah, there'd be, there's no conversation, there's no dialogue. Everyone just knows, okay, there's a big God, he's, a, he's big as in the sky. What's he like? Don't know. But he's big, pretty darn powerful, and that's pretty much it. Um, God has this... this, this uh, uh, desire that as part of our love and appreciation and obedience uh, it's also to remember the things that he has done and so we gather um, we gather in our worship services we gather in our Bible studies we gather two or three when we are gathered we talk what do we talk about talk about what God has done I mean constantly what what how we, we do say things like hey how are you and Jesus getting on okay great but we also like to discuss what has God been doing in your life. Let me tell you about some of the great things the Spirit's been doing. Let me tell you about some of the things I saw recently. I saw a guy get healed. I saw somebody uh, whose marriage got back together. I saw you know, these wonderful things. And uh, it's got to do with, with um, things that we see uh, with our eyes, which also makes them tangible, which also makes them very real. Our faith isn't just something esoteric. It's just pie in the sky, let's sit on clouds you know, and, sing, and play with harps. The faith that we have, the, 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 the kingdom of heaven is a very real thing and it is something you can see. Okay, we, we, we don't see God, that is true, but we can see the activities of God and those of his followers. You can see the hand of God in the, in the life of the world. All right. So... Aaron, I just, can I just say, I like the way in this, this one sentence you pointed out, this really long sentence, that as Vida said, it starts with the consideration of the dis discipline of the Lord. And it has three things in it, really. It has God's power against your enemies, God's mighty acts in your favor, and God's dealing with rebellion within. Wow, that's nice. And, yeah, and that is, the, the, these three... Can are, you say that nice and slowly again? <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's got his... Um, He's got his great acts of power against Israel's enemies, particularly Egypt. And then he's got his power on behalf of them, you know, leading them, guiding them, feeding them yeah. and blessing them. But it's also majors on this aspect of the rebellion within and how he addresses that. So these three are all part of the discipline of the Lord. And it, basically it cuts both ways. You know, it's not a, especially when you've got, the potential for rebellion within. Yeah, oof, yeah, maybe never do that. Okay, so verse 8, uh, it reads, Therefore you shall keep 
every commandment which I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land which you cross over to possess. All right. Anything there? What's the therefore in relation to? So the things they experienced um, in the previous chapter. Yep. <laughs> yes. So you've seen God do stuff. Okay. We've all seen God do stuff. Yes. Right. Good. Yeah. Excellent. We, 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 God has done some amazing things. So God's done something. Shall we just toast a nice cold beer to him in the <laughs> afternoon and say, well done, Lord. No, there's a response from his people. God has done something. Therefore, therefore, you have seen these things. Therefore, so you should do. See what God has done. Therefore, obey. So memory uh, is important even right, for us. You know, so we can remember what the Lord has done and then spur us into action. I like uh, Sorry, Aaron, I like what it says here that you do these commandments that you may be strong because there's a, there's a benefit from doing them. It's not yes. just do them because I've told you. It's do them that you may be strong. Yes, and actually he said this a few times now. Uh, these things are for your benefit. These things are for your good. Do this and you will be strong. Um, and, and I think we've, we've mentioned it before. Try and pick a commandment that actually really actually inhibits you and, and, and squashes you. It doesn't really. Not, not really. Okay? Controlled diets. Uh, the, 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 a just society. Caring for widows and orphans and those who are weak that are amongst us. This all creates actually a very strong community. But, but there's also there is also an implication of what's coming for them, where it says you will go in and possess it. it that, uh, that's not going to be an easy business. Yeah, no, that's right. The, I mean, I'm sure the, the Israelites are nervous, you know, um, but and any, any form of encouragement would be nice. And so if you keep following these commands, you will gain strength. This is going to be, in fact, these obedience is going to be your strength and you will win. You will succeed. You will possess the land. And not only that, uh, obedience and obeying the Lord actually has not just uh, benefits like it's good. Um, there are other very, very tangible benefits. In this case, in verse 9, that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swore to give your fathers to them and their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, if, you, if you continue to obey the commandments, you will pro prolong your days in the land. There's even a, one of the Ten Commandments which has a, um, uh, a blessing attached to it. Anyone remember what it is? Honoring the father and the mother. Yeah, honor your father and mother, and, and it comes with a blessing. What's the blessing? Yeah. Uh, you may live long life. Yeah. Long life. Yes. Praise the Lord. So I guess we all want long life. We all want to put our oil of Yulan on our skin and make ourselves look young and, and eat healthy and take a vitamin pill. Okay. Make sure the first thing you do is you're looking after mom and dad. Then take your oil of Yulan. Then take your vitamin pill and eat your vegetables. But uh, there is, it's interesting that that comes with a, a caveat. And also in this case, um, the, the land is brought up again. You're going to go in and possess the land. Now make sure you obey so that uh, you will live on this land for a, a lengthy period of time. 
So obedience brings blessing, long life in the land. And the land is again described as a good land with milk and honey. Again, again, that, that interesting motif. Okay. Sorry, Erin, I just could, sorry, just jumping back slightly. Can this also where it says that, you know, do these commands so that you can be strong and go and possess the land. Could this not also be where, you know, in the New Testament, it's similar to where Lord Jesus turns around to us and says, you know, if you don't do what I, you know, you do what I say, because otherwise I, I never knew you. You are workers of iniquity. You're not going yeah. to come into the promised land. Yeah, 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 that's right. The, this, the, the, the same theology has to run through to the New Testament too. You can, yeah. see, it. You can see it in Jesus. And with Jesus, he gets a lot more personal. I mean, I'm not saying this is not personal. It is pretty personal. Okay? <laughs> um, Aaron, why, why milk and honey? Uh, I think <laughs> I don't really know. But, um, you know, I think uh, Neville mentioned it. One is, um, is it agriculture and one's... Um, uh, trees. Well, it means that you've both got pasture land for for the livestock and therefore the milk, and you've got wooded areas, fl flowers and woodland for the honey. Yeah. Because normally you would find um, bees in trees. Yes. Yes, and and the description of the land itself, you know, is the the land you're coming into. Yes, you know, just it's not quite like Egypt. It's something else, uh, which is an interesting way that God will, will describe it. But um, uh, the, the land is, you know, it's promised that God would give it to the fathers. Yes? Verse, verse, uh, verse 9. Um, Go in in the land which the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Except, okay, it's conditional upon your obedience. Hang on a second. How does that one work? It was a covenant with with God um, and Abraham, and a covenant needs um, the other party to pro to provide some some inputs into the deal that is being discussed. And so the covenant says that if they keep the commandments, then they, they get the land. Right. So, so what happens if the children of Israel disobey at this point? Well, I mean, they don't. But if they did, then they wouldn't get the land. So then God would get the some land, other yeah. way how to get the land to, to the patriarchs. <laughs> right? It's interesting that the, the, the promises of the past are true, yes and amen, and somehow the past is connected to the present. Yeah. And so there's this constant reflection in the Bible. Remember the former days, so that it has a bearing on your life today and this will impact your future. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Messiah has already won my freedom. Now live that out now. Collect your reward in the future. The past, present and future uh, are interlinked with somehow. And, um, and it's interesting. God promises to the patriarchs. Yet, when the time comes, when push comes to show, the very people who, who, who are actually going to do the, the, the battle, <coughs> I really need obedience from you guys. All right? This is, it's, this is going to, you're going to get the land, but it's going to come through, through this. Oh, by the way, I've also promised this to the patriarchs. So trust me, if you obey my commands, you will win, and it's going to be true for them. It's going to be true for now. It's going to be true for the future. Aaron, can I ask a question? I know I'm jumping the gun a bit, but... 
Do you, do, you, do you have a reason, perhaps a reason why that when they cross over they're going to literally uh, restate their, their, their allegiance when they come before the two mountains of Gerizim and Ebal? Uh, they're going to have to s sort of re-promise the Lord God to be obedient. Yeah. That's a good question. You know, there, there's a few, um, there's actually not a few, there's a, a lot of these repetitions again and again. I mean, we've got books one to four and yet... Deuteronomy, we've got, we got to do this retelling again, slightly shaped in a different way. Uh, and then when we get into the land, first thing we're going to do in, in the book of Joshua, circumcise ourselves. And we're going to hop on some mountains and we're going to start yelling at each other. And then, you know, we're going to put some standing stones and we're going to write the words of, of God all over them. We've got to do so many things to constantly remind ourselves the promises of the Lord, our allegiance to Him, what we've done. We've got to, we, 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 it's, it's as though we literally want to make monuments all over this land. So no matter where we go, we're going to see something that reminds, uh, reminds us. It's almost like you know, modern-day pilgrimages to modern-day Israel, right? Crawl over anywhere in the Galilee and you find a church or something that commemorates something uh, of the Lord. And if not, don't worry, we'll make it up. But you'll find something to help remember, remember the Messiah. The thing I like about the Lord choosing two mountains is that it's not just like a, a stone or an altar or something small. It's, it's a couple of massive, great big hills, one, one yeah. looking fairly barren and one looking green. It's a very big reminder. Yeah. Yes, with a, with a whopping huge settlement right in the middle now, but that wasn't back then. Okay. Yeah. Who's actually been to Mount Gerizim? Yeah. yeah. A few people. Anyone been to Mount Ebal? Or did you just look at it from the other side, like I did? <laughs> I'm interested to go in order to see um, Joshua's altar. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen that. No. It's interesting, though, the whole concept of mountains. You know, God is always revealing himself on mountains. It's that mountain theme all from, you know... From the beginning, Mount, you know, Mount, uh, of course, the, the Garden of Eden on the mount, and then Mount Sinai, Mount of Beatitudes, one of the mounts. Yes. <laughs> and you just, and it just goes until, you know, the end, you know, New Jerusalem, the mount. And so it's just so amazing how these themes just go throughout, you know, the tree of life, the rivers of flowing water, just from the beginning into the end and throughout. It's so beautiful. I love it. Yep. I especially about, love the fact that the, the mountain of the Lord will be raised up above all mm -hmm. the other mountains yeah. and then mm -hmm. nations stream to it. That's a great thought. Mm -hmm. I, I, and I, I, I'm going to ask the Lord, you know, what, what's he really got against flat open spaces? <laughs> like, uh, the bush in uh, Australia. Yeah, they, yeah, I know. So what, what do you want to do with Australia? It's like, oh, I've completely forgot about that country. Yeah, like, uh, yeah. Do you ever think about uh, giving your law on this, uh, you know, flat desert? No, I like mountains, Aaron. I really, really like mountains. So. But um, anyway, okay. So in um, uh, verse 10, for the land which you go in to possess is not like the land of Egypt from uh, which you have come. Now that is again. Moses, a lot of this time, reminds the people that they are not the original inhabitants of Canaan. They are not. Where was Abraham originally from? Ur. 
Ur. Ur. No, Chaldea, nowhere near the down place. Okay, it's it's not that God said, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna choose a people that've already got themselves a little territory, and I'll reveal myself to them, and away we go. It's I will take people from one place, and I will move them to another. Um, they are in the house of bondage, in the house of slaves. I will take these people out. They're not big. They're not strong. They're not powerful. They're not rich. Uh, and I'm going to use them and bring them in to this land. But they are not the original inhabitants. That, remember, the land is an inheritance. It is a gift of, of the Lord. It is not something that they deserve, uh, that, uh, that they were born with. It's not an inherited inalienable right. Um, this is uh, a gift. So the land which you are going in to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come. Okay, so let's describe the land of Egypt. I mean, we could have said, you know, it's got gigantic pyramids. It's got these stupid kings. It's got a crazy religion that just, you know, is enthralled with death. Okay. Uh, or it's great. It's huge. It's massive. What does it talk about? Hills and valleys. Hills and valleys, okay. And food. And, All right. and, and gardening. You know, I'm going to describe my, this, this Egypt to you. You know, it's not... When, when, when we're describing our countries to each other, usually what we don't say is, oh, you want to visit Australia? We've got, we got lots of sheep. Yeah, yeah. Um, fantastic farming land. Yep. yep. You really want to get out there into the bush. Um, that's usually not the way you describe countries, but this is the way history does, sacred history does here, um, where, and it describes how they grew food, where you sowed your seed and watered it by foot as a vegetable garden. Okay. Right. Can I just say what, what I think that's referring to? It, I think it's an image here of, because they, they were farming in the flatlands next to the Nile and they were... Uh, flooded every year and in order to irrigate the, the lands they would stack they would stand in the ditches and make and break the little mud barriers to let the water flow through one one channel and not another so they'd make and break little soil barriers in those ditches so that's what it means by watering by feet it could be um the uh the hebrew is actually unclear hishkit uh um, does involve something to do with your, your foot, but uh, can also have something to do with urine. Right? So where does, where does the water of Egypt get its, its uh, water from? It gets it from the Nile, and they move the Nile. Uh, the waters and they drain them, they put them into these sort of like little swamp type things and dams and they use recycled water to irrigate their crops. And they use their feet, right? Mushing down and, and treading and walking around in this unclean water. Where does the water from God's land come from? From the heavens. Yeah, it comes from heaven. It does not come yeah. from the earth. It is not impure. It is not polluted. Okay, um, it's a very interesting way for God to describe, right? He could have just said, you know, it's, uh, you, you, the land of Egypt is not like uh, Israel. Egypt's just a mess. Egypt's a basket case and they're worshipping dung beetles. I mean, my gosh. Uh, my land's a lot pure. Um, we, we go into how the earth itself gets drink, how the earth itself 
is uh, going to sustain the population. And for, for the Egyptians, it might not be a very clean activity, okay, in relation to um, not saying that using grey water is bad because Israel uses it today on its agriculture, but in relation to its idea of pure uh, holiness vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, God. Mm -hmm. Verse 11, but the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys. God just loves these hills and valleys, loves these mountains, uh, and it drinks water from heaven. Right? So the water that God is going to give is not from an impure source. It's from the purest source there is, heaven. Okay? So what have the people been eating in the desert? Manna. Manna, which is uh, known as bread of heaven. Okay. And now we're going to come into the land of Israel, and what are we going to drink? Water from heaven. Water from heaven. Okay. Well, uh, today we're going to make it out of recycling. But prior to that, okay, we, we existed um, from, from heaven itself. Uh, and then the, verse 12 gives it this very interesting, uh, again, description of, of the land. A land for which the Lord your God cares for. Mm -hmm. As opposed to what would be a what would be a, a negative question about that sentence? Is there why would he care? The Canaanites were in the land, so why would he care for the land at the time? Okay, that's that's a good question. Didn't think of that one. This is a land that God cares for. So, so if you had a good skeptic, you know, someone who really wants to give you a jab, um, he, what, what it, might he say? Which land doesn't God care for? Yes, exactly. What do you mean God only cares for this land? What about, what about my country? What about, what about Australia or New Zealand? I mean, I can understand why God doesn't care about New Zealand. But, um, you know, uh, some other places. A land for which the Lord your God cares. There's, there's just this something. Now, there's no, no, you don't always have to rush to the negative, although people always do. But there's something about this land, even though it's inhabited by Canaanites, even though they're doing some horrible practices and you know, it's really detestable and it's time for them to go, God cares for this, this land. This land that does not get water from any other source other than heaven. Okay, there's no great dam, there's no giant you know, Euphrates flowing through us. Um, you know, we, 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 uh, it, it, up until recently, really needed uh, to watch our water carefully. Although the, the, the eyes of the Lord, continuing in verse 12, the eyes of the Lord your God are always on it. From the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. Now, isn't that an interesting thought? Okay, so let's unpack that idea. Okay. Where should the eyes of the Lord be? To and for the earth. Yeah, that's right. They should be everywhere, brother, as, uh, as uh, Shimshon says uh, very aptly. Um, if we have a look at, uh, I think it's Proverbs 15. Is that the one that says that? Yeah. Can I ask a question before you go? Is, is, this not, is this not saying the early and the latter rain? Yes. Yeah, this is, um, this is the, the, it could be. 
The eyes of the Lord are on it from the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. I mean, the beginning of the year, the end of the year is when you get your rain. Yeah. So, uh, although Proverbs 3, uh, 15 verse 3, says the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Okay. Keeping watch on the evil and the good. So he's, uh, he's looking at everything. We know that. We, we, we know that um, in many of our... Uh, ideas and understandings of, of God. We use you know, nice big Latin and Greek words, omnipresent, right? omnipotent, you know, he's absolutely everywhere, he's seeing actually everything. So why uh, do you say this? Because it seems superfluous. If your eyes are everywhere, what's so special about this? And this is an interesting um, concept because this is not the only place where, where God has this. Um, when Solomon builds his temple and the first temple is finally constructed, absolutely beautiful, and we're ready to have our inauguration service, Solomon stands in front of it and he begins a little, a little prayer, prayer of dedication, and he begins to talk to God. And um, he says, you know... Um, you're the king of the universe. The whole universe can't sustain you. You're just too big for even the universe to fit in. How do you fit inside this box that I've built with my own hands? Like, how is that possible? And instead of saying, you know, God saying, look, leave it to me, son, watch this, he responds with a, with a, with a beautiful sentence, which is actually, actually um, uh, on the Western Wall. Uh, my eyes and my heart are always here. You go, okay. But I'm sure you see everything, right? So what does it mean for God's eyes and heart to always be here? What does it mean for this verse to say, this is a land God cares for. This is a land that my eyes are on from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. What do you think, guys? He pays special attention to what goes on there and, and special care for it. This holy habitation. I mean, God's not living in the land. Uh, it, it, Aaron, could it, could it be that the people now represent the Lord in the land? As like. So, so, so when, when Israel came out of Egypt, who came out with them? Foreigners. Yeah. Who else? God. Aaron, throw into the mix beginning and end. If, he, if his eyes are there from the beginning to the end, beginning of what and the ending of what? Is this the beginning where Adam is created? Is this the end in the valley of Jehoshaphat where he will judge mankind? Could These be. Things are put into the mix. Because remember, in, in, in Jewish tradition, where is the Garden of Eden? Jerusalem. Correct. It's on the, the temple. temple. Yeah, that's right. So, to the east of Eden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yes, this, this you know, it's very strong tradition that this is where creation started. Right? You know, this is a very special place. Why is God caring for this place out of all the great places of the planet? I mean, if God really liked mountains, right? 
there are some pretty big mountains in Canada. Right? There are some pretty big mountains, you know, in, in, in Kilimanjaro, right? Yeah, Everest, like, like pick them, they're bigger. But there's something about this place, and it could be because this is where creation started. It could be that this is where the garden was. And as Roddy said, this could be ju the, the judgments scene, right? Yeah, or that's very interesting. Also, the idea of the bookends, right? He was in the beginning, yeah. Garden of Eden, and then at the end, the book ended in the book of uh, at Revelation. At the same time, he's going to tabernacle with us. So, um, could it be Olive Tav? I don't know. Olive, you know, just, uh, yeah, why not? That could be it. This, this is the beginning and the end. This is the beginning of time and it's going to be the end of time. Roddy, you going to say something? I have a question because so the, I read I want to ask at the same time. Uh, God made, made the Adam of the earth yes. uh, and made them. And then put them in It's written. Yes. That's right. So, Do we so where did he make them? According to Jewish tradition, Jerusalem. Yes, but uh, you say according to the Jewish tradition, do you, you think that this uh, has something against um, this tradition? No, nothing at all. So the, 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 I think it's a great tradition. So according to Jewish tradition, God makes uh, Adam uh, using the dust of Jerusalem, makes him in Jerusalem, and then brings him to the garden. And then he expels him from the garden. And then when Adam dies, Michael the archangel buries him back in Jerusalem where he was made. And uh, thus setting up the idea of beginnings and ends always occurring no in the, same, in the same place. <laughs> okay. Um, and so you end up with first man Adam bringing death into the world in Jerusalem. And then last man Adam taking death out of the world in Jerusalem, you know, the resurrection occurring in Jerusalem, the creation occurring in Jerusalem, and judgment occurring in Jerusalem. This little big one place. So you can see there's a pretty important place to keep your eyes on. And, um, and, and God says, even before we've even gone in, and not only that, remember that the, 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 the second tablets of stone are a, a, are a joint venture between man and God. Right? Moses is writing and, 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 and cutting the stones out. God is dictating a joint venture between the two. When God, uh, when, when God brings his people out of Egypt, he also says, I come too. I, I, I'm with you. God is in, in, uh, in Exodus talking to Moses, and he says, Bolaparo, come to Pharaoh. It doesn't say go to Pharaoh. Like he's on the outside of Midian saying, Moses, go that way. He's actually saying, come to Pharaoh, because where's God? Mm. God is with Pharaoh. God is with his people. He comes out of Egypt with his people, builds a tabernacle, says, I want to live with you. They've been carrying him around for the last 40 years. The people of Israel are going to take him into the land. Now, that's just uh, a concept that can spin you right out there. You know, God could have shown up in, Israel, in, in Canaan and said, okay, Israel, in you come, you know, and, and we'll take these guys together. But, but God is actually going to go into the territory with his people, live with his people, and uh, that's actually pretty special. Yeah. So, Aaron. Yes, sir. Um, we need to think about 
what scripture is specific to how important Jerusalem is to God. And two of them come to my mind. Okay, what other? Um, I think it's Isaiah 43, but God says that he will literally engrave the name of Jerusalem on the palms of his hands. Yeah. And this is in context for verses before and after. He says that he will engrave this name on his hand. Then we have uh, Psalm 137, I think it is, by the rivers of Babylon. Yes. He says that if, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, that I will forget my right hand. Yeah. And if, the, if this is God speaking, who sits at the right hand of God the Father? Yeshua. That's right. So these things are pretty important to him from these two verses. Now, I know Psalm 137 can be argued in a different direction, but still it's there. Yeah. 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 There is, there is something about this place, something about this mountain, something about this sacred history, uh, which has God's attention. And for a very long time, what has God allowed to live in this land? Evil. Yeah. Giants. Yes, giants. Yes, giants. Yes. Uh, Jennifer. Yeah, giants, Jennifer. Absolutely. And who are the giants? They're the descendants of? Um, the Anakins. The Anakins. Nephilim. There's yeah. several tribes of them. Right. Angelic rebellion. These are... Oh, yeah. This is, this is uh, an evil um, superpower rebellion against the Lord that has taken up residence at the base of Mount Hermon and has been inhabiting this region, doing its best to, to stop the plans of God. Yet God has cared for this land very much. Okay? Um, it is, it's his garden of Eden. It's his foundation stone of the world. Um, and, uh, and so he makes sure that uh, when it's time to come in and, and, and defeat these people, we're going to wipe out these giants. We're going to get rid of them. It's going to be a joint venture between man and God, okay? just like the tablets are, just like leaving Egypt is, just like uh, uh, the kingdom of heaven in, in today, the way we would speak about it in the Messiah. The kingdom of heaven is a joint venture. God is king? Absolutely. Yeshua is the king? Absolutely. And yet, we are the ones that are spirit-empowered, doing our best uh, to, to fight back the enemy in all of its forms. And, and spread the presence of uh, these uh, followers, the Raphaim, the giants, I would argue that their presence is even more evidence towards how important the land in Jerusalem mm. is to God because anything that is the most important to God, the evil one will come in and try to take over and inhabit. And this is mm -hmm. what we see here in the land. We see that. Yep. 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 Yeah. And if you remember back in uh, Deuteronomy 9, uh, ch chapter 9, verse 4, but it, because it, but it is because of the wrong of those nations that Yehovah is driving them out from before you. So the Lord is using Israel to, to cleanse the iniquity that's been happening in the land. Absolutely. Mm. Yes, yes, I remember, I remember reading those verses and wrestling with that. It's like, uh, yeah, why is God giving you this land? Well, yes, I made promises to Israel, uh, to the patriarchs, not a problem. But these guys are so bad, they got to go. And, uh, and, and it so happens that it's this time right now. Yeah. Okay. So what do you, what do you then uh, 
How do we then behave or relate to this land? Okay. Not necessarily the people of the land, the land. If God's eyes are here, if this is the land that he cares for, what should be a response by the believer? We should love it and care for it exactly as Adam was meant to be. Yeah, very good. Nice very good. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and Honor the creator by honoring the land, what you yeah. do with it. Yeah, Adam was was uh, was instructed, right, uh, to tend and to care. And, and and what was he was he ever meant to actually leave the garden? No. no. Okay. Uh, was the garden meant to remain the same size? Meant to expand. These are hard questions. Yeah. Like if if you if you're a farmer, like what do you expect your plants to do? To grow. You expect them to grow. And if you're tending in a garden, what is going to happen by default? It grows, right? And it propagates, okay? It's going to seed. The wind is going to carry seed. And, you know, it's going to, to, to grow. Birds are going to eat beads and, and, and um, fertilize other parts of the world you know this sort of idea that the kingdom of heaven has never ever ever since the beginning been static it's always been dynamic it's always been growing it's always been alive it's always been moving breathing and it's required work right the kingdom of heaven has required work you, you work out your salvation with fear and trembling you grow in the knowledge of the lord you don't just sit there and press you know, a little button and download information you we do what we're doing today we gather in the name of the Lord, we read through his, his, his word, we study, we wrestle with the hard stuff as well as the good stuff. And, uh, and in some small way, we are becoming better, I hope, better disciples of the Messiah. We are making God's garden a little bit better, a little bit greener, a little bit stronger, and we're even watering and hoping to make some of the expansion. So, yeah. Uh, so this this land is 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 very special, and God has this special af- affection for it, and uh, we should we should have the same response that Adam has or should have had to uh, to the land. Uh, Just a little observation, Aaron, about the from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. The climate here has very clearly two seasons: you know, mild, yeah. wet winters and hot, dry summers. And this from the beginning of the year to the end of the year makes me think that the, you know, isn't it, it isn't that God looks after the land just during the winter when he sends rain. He looks after it when the sun shines and when there's no rain. So then you end up actually appreciating both seasons and you don't take rain for granted. Like you do in where I come from in the UK, we get more rain than we want. Yeah. But but in this climate, you, you... I really appreciate that when the rain comes, but you also appreciate when the sun shines and ha- and the harvest time comes. Uh, you know, so the, uh, the balance makes you appreciate both seasons and and see the care of God both in the rain and in the dry. Yeah, very good because that's true. When uh, that's right. When, sometimes when we're going through our dry period, it is hard to remember 
that God actually is there caring for us. I mean, it's easy to say that when he's giving you stuff like rain and blessings and things, but when it's time not to get a blessing, um, I guess memory is very good, just like here. Remind us that God is there at the beginning and at the end and in the middle of those, those dry periods. Thanks, Neville. That was really good. Appreciate that thought. Aaron, where it comes to caring for the land, Psalm 102, say verses 12 to, 15, 12 to 16. Yeah. That, that, there might be some significance in that about caring for the land because <laughs> your, your accent is far better than mine. Psalm 102? 102, 12 to, six, to 16. Okay. Does it say, but you, O Lord, shall endure forever? That the one? That's the one, yes. And the remembrance of your name to all generations. So, again, memory and God's name is linked there. You will arise and have mercy on Zion, okay, for the time to favor her. Yes, the set time has come, for your servants take pleasure in her stones. You show favor to her dust, so the nations will fear the name of the Lord and the kings of the earth with glory. You shall build up Zion. He shall appear in his glory. He shall regard the prayer of the destitute. Okay, so there, there is this uh, a real strong thing there that um, uh, as part of rebuilding Zion, the stones and the dust will somehow do something, which... Oddly enough, we've seen through history. <laughs> Could this also have anything to do, Aaron, with the, the idea of the beginning of the year, end of the year, with the Moedim? You know? Yeah. There, yeah there, we, it's interesting that um, uh, Moses you know, hasn't, he will talk about high holidays a little bit later, but uh, in, in relation to this, there's, there's no mention of any special festival per se at the moment. Um, but all the festivals are linked around what? Linked around the land. And later on, we're going to attach a religious significance to them. But, um, I mean, I like the, this. It's, it's an interesting piece of tension that, that, that Hebrew loves to operate. God is incredibly powerful. His eyes are everywhere. Absolutely. Yes. And yet, he cares for this land. He cares for all of them too, but this one in particular. Um, I like it when I take people down to the Western Wall. You, I read out that little discussion from Second Chronicles 6, which is the um, uh, King Solomon portion, and I say if there's ever any spot on the planet where you want to know that God's looking at right now, right here. So everybody on your best behavior? And uh, everybody, oh, yeah, they're on best behavior. All of a sudden, everyone tucks their shirts in, okay, shoves a keeper on their head, um, and uh, you can go down and you can start praying. And you know that God is watching. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.